Hello and welcome to Making UX Work, the Give Good UX podcast. I'm your host, Joe Natoli, and our focus here is on folks like you doing real, often unglamorous, UX work in the real world. You'll hear about their struggles, their successes, and their journey to and through the trenches of product design, development, and of course, user experience. My guest today is Ann Darty, who, among other things, is a writer and a UX and content architect. Ann is quite passionate about making excellent user experiences, as well as film, curling, and, by her own definition, the Oxford comma. Ann has over 20 years of experience working in digital spaces, primarily in the progressive nonprofit community. And she believes, like I do, that regardless of what problem a user is trying to solve, they can't do that without good, useful, relevant content. Here's my conversation with Ann Darty on Making UX Work. So, Ann, how are you? I am well this morning, Joe. How are you? I'm very good. It's Friday. It's the end of the week. It's the most joyous day of the week. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> okay, so... You, if I understand correctly, I mean, your your core area, not necessarily of expertise, but what you spend a lot of time doing seems to be more IA-driven, content strategy-driven. Uh, Is that correct? That is correct. I mean, it, the thumbnail sketch of me, I like to tell people when I when I go to, to meetups and, you know, design workshops and things, and they say, well, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. And I say, well, you know, I'm a content-focused UX designer, and it's taken me a while to get to to that explanation. Um, mm -hmm. When I first made the pivot to officially doing more UX work a couple of years ago, as opposed to the unofficial UX work I've been doing for the bulk of my career, um, when I first made that pivot into, into quote unquote, real UX work, um, there was no emphasis in the community that I'm in on content at all. It was very visually design driven, very UI driven, very Oh, what do you mean you don't have a million fonts on your you know, yeah. MacBook Pro? And, and when, when was that? When when did I do that? Yeah, when, when in terms of years, when was this? Um, this was actually about two years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it's gradually taken me a while to realize that no, content is an important part of the user experience. And um, it's a little bit like saying that it's not is a little bit like standing at the parade and watching the emperor go by and going, Am I the only one who can see his junk? Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so I am, I am, that is a long way of saying I am a content focused designer, basically. Well, well, I mean, and that's as it should be, isn't it? I mean, as far back as, you know, graphic design before software, you know, was, was a, a designer's focus. Mm -hmm. Content has always been, in my mind, the driving force behind everything. I mean, it's the reason you bother to, to check anything out. If you think about it or use anything. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. I mean, you know, in it, it's interesting. I mean, on in the Facebook group you have, we have some interesting conversations about, well, you know, what if what if design is the point of the site or the point of the product? And 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 to me, that's kind of um, it's a little bit of a straw man argument um, mm -hmm. without content. 
regardless of what problem the user is trying to solve without content, they're not going to be able to solve it. No matter how pretty your product is, your app or your site or, or whatever, you know, your, your internet enabled kiosk, it doesn't matter. If they can't get the information that they need, they're not going to be able to solve their problem. And their problem might be anything from as complicated to, you know, I'm trying to pre-qualify for a mortgage to as simple as, I just want some pretty new wallpaper for my lockdown Windows machine that my company's given me and the only thing I can do is change the background on my desktop. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it really doesn't matter. I mean, that photograph that becomes your desktop background is content. Even though you're consuming it with your eyes, it's content. Amen. 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 I mean, I couldn't possibly agree more. I think the problem, and you tell me, okay, I often wonder if the problem is when people hear the term content, they have a very narrow definition of what that means. I, I think that's part of the problem. Um, I, I think that you're absolutely right. I think for a lot of people, their beginning and end of the definition of content is words. Mm -hmm. And to a large extent, content is words, but it's not the only definition of content. Um, YouTube, almost the entirety of their content offering is consumed visually. Yep. Um, Audible.com, the entirety of their content offering is consumed with your ears. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a very narrow definition. I also think, um, and this is possibly my own personal bias, but that bias grows out of the experiences that I've had professionally. Um, I think that to a large extent, people hear content and it gets kind of disregarded because the bulk of the people working in digital content, at least in the first wave of digital content, were women. Interesting. And women's work is often seen as not important. That's a fascinating viewpoint. I, I, actually, tell me more. <laughs> Tell me more about this. So one of one of the challenges that I'm I'm facing with my current employer, which is a very very large multinational consulting firm, mm -hmm. is that we struggle with the division between content and quote unquote UX. Um, I personally hold a fairly unpopular opinion that content and UX are actually the same; that they shouldn't be in different buckets. That famous Maslow pyramid that everybody's mm -hmm. heard of where, you know, Maslow had the psychological needs and the base need was, you know, safety and security. And then you go up and up and up and some wag has modified that pyramid to add, you know, Wi-Fi access. And then somebody else modified that to put, you know, an even bigger base below Wi-Fi access and say battery life. Mm -hmm. um, if you do a similar pyramid for user experience or for service design experience, I would actually say that content is at the base of that pyramid. Because without content, great, you picked a nice font stack and you made a really great color scheme and your layout's perfect, but you're looking at lorem ipsum and nobody cares. Well, it's art. <laughs> it's art. It, yeah, I, I suppose it's art. I mean, we can have that, that conversation about, you know, whether or not certain things in modern art are art, but I think that may be on the scope of this podcast. Um, but 
you know, there, but the company that I work for, there is a very strict division between content and UX and UX people never do content and content people don't feel like they are empowered to talk about content related things that affect the user experience. Wow. And when I look at the way those two groups are staffed, yeah, there are some women working in UX, but almost the entirety of the content staff is female. That's really interesting. Yeah. I'm curious about the UX side of the house. Mm-hmm. How is it possible? I'm really having a tr- trouble with this. <laughs> how is it? How is it possible that the folks on the UX side of the house don't understand or see or value the degree to which content is the backbone of everything they're putting across to people? Um, what is it that they think? I think that. I think that it's it it comes from that it comes from that root of UX being associated with UI being associated with visual design. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Yeah. Um and I think that's that's really where that that bias comes from is UX and UI have have gotten and are still for a lot of people conflated um, when UI is really no more the entirety of UX than content being the entirety of UX. Yeah. You took the words right out of my mouth because that's where I was going. This is one of those situations where UX and UI are interchangeable terms. Uh, But they're not. No, of course they're not. Of course they're not. But for a lot of organizations, they very much are. Okay, And there's still a very widespread misunderstanding um, of UX and of design in general. Okay, I think anytime someone says that word – Everybody thinks visual, unfortunately, mm-hmm. and, and and man, that's 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 two percent, you know, of the entire picture. Yeah, it's it's not, it's it's a very small part of the picture, and and you know, don't please don't mistake what I'm saying. I mean, the folks who are doing UX on the UX side of the house, they are very well aware of how important content is, and they're very well aware that their strengths may not lay in the content domain. So, Hmm. you know, there is a lot of interpersonal professional respect, but I think on a systemic and sort of administrative level, there isn't really a grasping of the understanding that, Without content, your product doesn't work, regardless of what your product is. Okay. So we're talking about higher level management. Maybe we're talking about project management. Um, So that's where the, is is that the area of the organization where the disconnect occurs more so than, than in the day to day? Yeah, it, it's it's higher it's higher up than people who are doing the day to day work. Okay, I mean it it extends even into the sphere of how projects are actually written up or how proposals are actually written up because I think that one of the challenges that we also face as consultants is that you know in the sphere we're working in, um, which is the public sphere. Not a lot of our clients understand how important content is and how it affects the user experience. And, you know, as the sort of the domain experts, as the people who are supposed to be helping them deliver better for the people they're responsible to, which is their their users, their external stakeholders, um, it's up to us to write those proposals and craft those projects right from the beginning so that they actually have something that is going to fulfill that promise to their, to their external stakeholders, to their users. And I think that because there's that disconnect between the people who are actually doing the work and the people who are very often writing the proposals or going in and pitching to the clients, 
that sometimes when the folks who do the actual work get on site, they're walking into an environment where they're already having to fight even more to get good content or get good content governance or get not so much good metadata because we're, we've reached the point with, with the ubiquity of Google that everybody understands the importance of search mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're already having to fight to say, well, you know, you, you, need to, you need to have a content strategy. You need to have an archiving plan. You need to understand how to write for the web even or how to write for an app even and, and how to reuse and recycle content. And mm-hmm. so, you know, having to, to not just fight all those battles, but then also fight the battle on the administrative level where it's like, well, you've got enough content work here for a team of eight and you've put one content person on this project. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, in my experience, that's common. I mean, that's a, you just described a very common scenario to me. And, and what I wonder is often, because I don't have the answer, and again, I'm interested in your, in your take here, is that a result of traditional organizational culture inside an organization, right? Leftovers from, we're, we're in the digital age, but companies have, all these companies have been around for a long time. And the org chart is still the org chart is still the org chart, even though it's been manipulated a little bit. Is it that or is it that all of this, okay, in the digital realm of products, are we still just in our infancy and we haven't quite grown to the point where it's more than lip service? Now it's an integrated part of what everybody does. I think it's a combination of those things. I think for many organizations, most organizations even, it's a combination of we're still clinging to, you know, the traditional inverted pyramid model of writing that we all learn in school where, you know, you have your most important concepts and then you broaden out and all that stuff. And we're also, I, I think that some of it is that we just haven't grown up yet and that the folks who are still on the top of that org chart are not necessarily unwilling to learn, but they just don't, they don't have like the experience to understand that Mm. it makes more sense to write a piece of content one time and reuse it a bunch of different places and how you would actually go about doing that. So So it's a function of needing to grow and a function of just corporate and organizational culture needing to embrace the idea that you know, content is not something that you write down once and stick in a folder. It's going to change. It's going to grow. It's going to need to get updated. Um, when I was the bulk of, I spent, I actually spent the bulk of my career working, um, in the progressive nonprofit sphere. And, um, so I've been doing this, well, I've been working in digital spaces over 20 years and I, distinctly remember I I was working at an agency um, and one of the major challenges we faced was that a lot of nonprofit organizations are still run by management structures or by people who think that their donors actually want to read press releases. (laughs) Does anybody want to read press releases? (laughs) No, reporters don't even want to read press releases. And so it was, you know, that was a big battle that we were constantly constantly refighting with every new client where, you know, they'd say, well, there's no space on the homepage for our, for our latest press release. And we would have to pick one of the very gentle responses out of the hat that basically amounted to really no one cares about your press releases. Just <laughs> no one cares. 
Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's it's not that, you know, it's not that public organizations, government agencies, whatever, are unique in not really understanding what their users care about. Um, it's it's endemic. Every organization has this problem. It's just the thing that they think impo- is important shifts, um, depending on what sphere they operate in. Sure. And, and I think that really grows out of not understanding the audience. Yeah. And, and walling yourself off to some degree intentionally or otherwise. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's really, it's a fear reaction. I mean, and in some ways it's not an unfounded fear reaction. Like the thing that, the thing that government agencies face is is that they're under so much scrutiny. Mm -hmm. There's just so much public scrutiny of everything a government agency does. And so it creates this environment where there's a fear to fail. Nobody's really embracing the whole, you know, lean mindset where you fail early and you fail fast and you make corrections because there's a feeling that there's no tolerance for failure. That if you put out a wrong piece of information, the next thing you know, your agency head is going to be sitting on CNN getting grilled or getting hauled in front of Congress and, you know, whatever it happens, Um, you know, whatever else happens. That's worse now. With the advent of the internet, that's I think that's infinitely worse. Yeah, it is infinitely worse. And it's so it's not an unfounded fear. And with nonprofits, the whole fail early, fail fast thing is really about a function of resources and a fear of being accused of not being a good steward of your donors' resources. Um, you know, it, it comes from sort of the subliminal attitude of, well, if somebody gives us five hundred dollars. They want us to put that toward program expenses and, you know, we need to make sure that we're being very careful with every penny. And that's that's really a good attitude to have. I mean, that's not a, an unfounded fear either. Well, sure, sure. You want to be responsible. You want to be a responsible steward of what people invest in you. Absolutely. But, you know, in the in the nonprofit world, it's sort of the tension between, you know, people want an organization to do the work but they don't want to pay for the organization to pay for people to actually do the work. They want it to happen by magic. <laughs> yeah, because that that's the invisible part, right? That's how the sausage is made. That's that's the part that nobody sort of actually sees uh, the existence of because it's it's glossed over for the most part. Exactly, exactly. There's a really famous cartoon that I think was originally published in The New Yorker, and it's these two, you know, kind of older, frumpy-looking professorial guys, you know, with the ties and the jackets and the, you know, Einstein-looking hair, and they're standing in front of this big chalkboard, and there are all these really complicated math calculations on the chalkboard, and down sort of in the lower right-hand corner, there's a, a rectangle, and inside the rectangle, it says, and a miracle occurs here. <laughs> and the caption on the cartoon is one guy saying to the other guy, I think you need to be a little more specific right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's about right. <laughs> yeah, and, and and for a lot of people, that's, that's how they view UX. It's like UX is, and a miracle occurs here, and out the other end comes this great user experience 
experience that's going to increase our donations by 500% or reduce the number of calls we get into our call center or, you know, make everybody subscribe to our product, whatever it is. Um, and so there's a lot of, there's a lot of mystery around what UX folks actually do. Yeah. Which is, you know, I get it. I mean, I, I, I keep saying design has had the same problem since its inception and UX certainly has the same problem since its inception. All the offshoots of what we do, um, have the same issue. And, and what you find is that there's just a struggle for people. And largely, I, I think this is, um, older, more established, not only institutions, but individuals have a hard time getting their head around this stuff. Like for instance, listening to you speak made me think of, of a consulting situation I was in where I was saying, look, we need to have a meeting this afternoon with your database team. We need to get these guys in the room and we need to talk about content in general, the stuff that we're surfacing. And three people looked at me like I had three heads and they said, well, what does data have to do with content? And I, <laughs> I had to pause for a minute. I said, well, um, they're the same thing. This is what we're surfacing to people. And we're doing it in a way where nobody understands it in the format in which it's presented. So we need to get some background on what this is, how it gets to the system, how it's cataloged, how it's organized, and how we could potentially surface it in a different way. And those guys have the answers to those questions. And it took another hour okay, of, of discussing and working through this and making them understand that all this stuff that people are paying you to consume in your system, it's all content. Mm -hmm. And if we don't get this part right, it doesn't matter how exciting what people see on the screen is. Yep. doesn't matter. They're going to stop paying you. The reason your customers are complaining right now is because they don't understand how to get at any of this and it's being presented to them in a way that they don't understand, that they can't use. So you got to go back to the beginning. You got to get beyond what it looks like. It's, it's what is it? You know, yeah, and that's content to me. I mean, it's all content, and that's absolutely that's absolutely you. You could not have have said it better. I mean, and maybe that's the challenge I think for content folks to try and open up the conversation about content being a part of UX is talking less about content as an abstract content concept and talking more about content as meaning. Mm. Yeah, 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 and, and maybe you have the same problem. That maybe content professionals in particular, okay, to use a very broad, ridiculously generic term, <laughs> um, have the same problem that designers and developers and UX folks have, which is we fall into the trap of talking about things in the ways that we understand them, mm -hmm. as opposed to using the terminology and the language and the outcomes in particular, or the obstacles in a way that the people signing the checks understand them. I mean, maybe you just hit something there. Yeah, that that is a really interesting. I'd like to I'd like to unpack that a little bit more. Go for it. Because um, I, I find that to be a really interesting perspective on the problem. And maybe it's that. Do you think that we are as as UX professionals and again, ridiculously broad, you know, 12 inch brush, um, UX professionals, content professionals, visual designers, you know, design researchers, all of us. Do you think that we need to approach our clients 
in the same way that we are telling our clients that they need to approach their users? Mm, I think so, but in what way? Well, in the sense that just how you mentioned, like we talk to them about user experience and about content strategy in language that we understand because we feel like they're the domain experts for whatever field they work mm-hmm. in, whether it's, you know, environmental activism or government policy or healthcare, or financial industry, whatever their domain is. And so we feel like they have the domain knowledge and that maybe kind of gives them a leg up in in experience and sophistication that their users might not necessarily have. Every audience is different, but might not necessarily have. Yeah. And so we have to go in and kind of explain to them, no, you need to not assume that your users know what you know. And maybe because kind of mentally we're framing them in a way of, okay, they have this domain knowledge that gives them kind of a leg up in sophistication. Maybe we need to make the assumption that they don't know what we know. In that case, yes, absolutely, positively, amen. Um, I will I will get up on the mountaintop and, and shout it, okay, for the next, you know, whatever remaining years of my life I have left. Um that's how firmly I believe in this. And lately I've been feeling like I personally have not been doing a good enough job of explaining that particular point. Okay. Because it's something I believe in strongly, obviously. (laughs) Clearly. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Right. Um, I think I would like to see us all do away with all the terminology we use, all of it, every word, every phrase, every formal name that we have for everything. And I I personally, I think that's true in any discipline, okay? But I increasingly, all right, on a daily basis, I read UX articles, right? Or things tangentially related to UX or product design or development or whatever. I cannot, I I swear to you, it's very rare that I ever read something where I can get past the first paragraph. And the reason for that is because we immediately venture into the land of jargon and terminology and just bullshit names for processes and all this high-minded stuff that only gets in the way of people understanding what the hell the author is talking about. And I think that that has infected all of us in terms of our practice. So I think you're absolutely right. I think a lot of times we automatically assume that everyone knows what it is that we're talking about. And the fact is they don't. All they know is that something is not working, they're feeling pain, and they don't know what to do about it. I definitely agree with you. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that, you know, in the reading that you do, it you find it difficult to get through it. Terrible. Because I do a lot of reading myself. Um, and very often I get into these articles and I'm, you know, halfway through a five minute read and I, I just, I don't, I'm, I'm completely lost yeah. because yeah. it's just terms and it's very confusing when people are using words that they don't, know what they mean or they may not mean the same thing that I think they mean because the context around them kind of indicates to me that, well, wait, you're using that term in a different way than I'm used to using it. And maybe it's that, I mean, I think part of the problem with with UX in general is that we don't even have a common language among ourselves. Right. And we've, I know we've talked in the Facebook group about this, um, 
you know, we've kind of reached the, you know, beat a dead horse um, point over this. But, you know, uh, a clear example of this is how people recruit for UX related jobs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I just UX developer needs to not become a thing. It just <laughs> it needs to not become a thing because it just it's just it's just throwing sand in the water and and it's just completely confusing. And and I don't know. I mean, do we create, do we use these confusing terms because we're secretly afraid that if we actually expose what we do, then we won't be seen as having value? Partly. Yeah. And I think it's also, there's a catch-22 involved the minute you're asked to tell someone what you do or the minute you say, okay, I'm trying to get a job in this field because the commonly used nomenclature is what it is, right? Companies are going to use certain terms for certain things. They're going to put out these ads and say, we want a UX developer or we want even UX designer, okay, is a misnomer. Mm-hmm. But that's the terminology. That's what's commonly understood and accepted to some degree. So you put yourself out there, you say, all right, I have to call myself something where people are going to recognize that, that yeah, I, I'm that thing that you want, that's what I do. And you don't want to. Because I think, as you as you said, you feel like <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to muddy the waters further, right? It, it's just it, it, and it does it adds to the confusion. But at the same time, I think you feel I think a lot of people feel caught, you know. Yeah, I mean, you have to have a way to describe yourself to other people. I mean, that's that's kind of the that's kind of the basis of a common language. Um, but I kind of want to circle back for a second. Why I'm curious about why you say UX designer is a is a misnomer. Can you can you explain a little bit about that for me more? Yeah, I can. Um, because again, it's it's this conflation of two things. All right, when when experience design came about as a discipline. And I think it grew out of a bunch of things. Um, it grew out of interaction design uh, for one thing, right? Alan Cooper's work. And then obviously, you know, Don Norman um, at Apple and some other folks started talking about the experience human beings have with a product. And their whole point with that was that everything that came before was sort of very narrowly defined. And they were saying, no, this, this, business, these things that we do, it's it's bigger than that. It's a lot of specific activities and specific areas under a very large umbrella. In other words, it's not just visual design. It's not just content. It's not just the mechanics of production, right? It's it's all of those things. It's human cognitive behavior. It's human psychology. It's it's visual messaging. It's perception of of color. (laughs) And what happened, I think, so then it became user experience, UX, which came out of HCI, human computer interaction. Mm-hmm. What happens shortly after that, and I believe this is how this thing kind of goes in just about any field, people had a hard time getting their head around UX. Okay, well, what does a UX person do? People know what a designer does, right? So the two things were sort of similar. They're living next to each other in a neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> so somebody said, oh, yeah, it's design. Oh, yeah, it is design. Okay, so I'm a UX designer. Okay. And then light bulbs went off for people. They're like, okay, I kind of get what that is. And that's what happens. Something enters the lexicon and it becomes this thing that means something other than what it really is. So to me, those are two different things. For someone who does user experience work is not necessarily a designer, but it became this blanket term for everything. And it also invited the direct confusion between 
UX designer, UI designer, yeah, right, visual designer, um, designer of experiences. I believe, and I've I've told this story so many times, and I'm not going to bore you with it. Um, the way I learned design in school when I went to school was that the visual result of that work was only one part of the equation. Design is design is design is design, whether it's mechanical or industrial, architectural, graphic, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. It's all the same thing. I still believe that. But in the same way that people had had trouble with that, it just there's this need to put things in boxes. And I think sometimes those boxes are inaccurate and doing so causes more problems uh, than it solves. So hopefully I answered your question. Yeah, no, that that totally makes sense, and it, it it aligns kind of with where I thought you were going. But I was I was curious because you you will very often have a more high level perspective. Um, I have noticed, and so I I appreciate you yeah. know your thoughts and and insights on at that at that higher level. Yeah, I just think I think there's a need. We have a need to, like I said, put things in neat little categories where everything makes sense. And I think that the world at large that we all live in it is a lot more complex than that. And I think that trying to do so causes more problems than it solves. I think it's better to walk in a situation and say, where is the issue here? All right. In our case, you and I are having a conversation about content, right? Mm-hmm. All right. So if we're talking about content, where are the, the content related issues? And maybe in going down that path, you find out that there's also an issue with the visual presentation of that content. Or uh, as I alluded to, there's an issue with the way that content is stored and categorized. Right. Point being, it's never just this one little thing. No. I don't know about your travels, but in mine, there is never one simple direct (laughs) piece of the pie that you have to deal with. No. No, it's never just one thing. It's always... It's always an, uh, a set of nesting dolls. You know, you, you take yeah, this and you yeah, open yeah. this one up and, oh, there's one more inside and there's one more inside and there's one more inside and there's one more inside until you're, you know, down to the tiniest, tiniest, solid little doll. And, you know, sometimes that tiny, solid little doll is, well, the person at the top of the organization is making all the decisions and won't listen. Or sometimes that solid solid, tiny little doll is we'd really love to do this, but we just don't have the funds or there's no political will or, you know, what for reasons, because reasons. Um, so yeah, it's never just one thing. And it's, you know, I also have a bit of a background as a front end developer. Um, and so I kind of, I, I keep coming back mentally to the metaphor of, you know, for UX and and how UX problems are solved and revealed to aligning it with how cascading style sheets work. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's just, it's not just discrete in CSS. It's not just if your if your style sheet is is coded correctly, um, it's not just a set of discrete instructions for whatever system you're working with to say, hey, use this font, use this color, in this size, with this padding, and this margin, and this float, and this clearance, and you know every other thing you can think of. If it's coded correctly, those changes cascade, and UX is exactly right. the same way. You can't solve a technical problem without affecting content delivery, without affecting the UI, without affecting the total experience. And so the UX is basically the sum total of all of those things cascading into each other. Right. And you just described, 
you know, my, my issue in, in a nutshell <laughs> with a degree of specificity that everybody sort of insists on. It, it's, it's false. Yes. I do believe as individuals, everybody's uh, talents, abilities, skill sets certainly gravitate towards very specific areas of this discipline. And I think that's important. Yeah. But I think these definitions get in the way. And I, I wonder often if they're not what cause people that are removed from what we do, often our clients or our bosses or our managers or our, our, our product owners or whoever they are. It's often what sort of uh, helps grow this idea that there's one specific thing we need to look at and, and that's it. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it, the world is complicated. The world requires a lot of mental energy and yeah. human beings have a tendency to use shorthand, whether it's, you know, inaccurate job descriptions or, you know, stereotypes. Um, they use shorthand to make it so, oh, I know what this thing or this person is. It goes in this box. I can now turn off my right. brain and worry about other things because I know how things that are in that box function. Yep. And that's that's really what it is, is that the world is complicated and is hard. It's just hard to be a person. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> it just, it really is. Amen. Yeah, it's, and that's, it's with everything, right? It's it's never just one thing. It's it's always a, a lot of things, and nothing is ever as neat and tidy as all this stuff makes it sound. I mean, you know my my big thing about formal processes and recipes for success and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's just all too simple. Mm -hmm. Okay, try to try to employ some of that in the real world, and you'll find out in five minutes exactly what it's worth. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I um I. Is it is it okay for me to say sort of where I'm physically located? Of course. Um, so I'm I'm in the Washington D.C. metro area, mm -hmm. and um, I did a bunch of volunteering for um, UXPA D.C. for the conference back in April. Um, shout out for UXPA D.C. It's an awesome group. If you're a UX person in the D.C. area and you are not a member, please, please, please join. It's free. Um, and you meet a lot of really good folks and we do a lot of really good stuff. Um, but I, I did some volunteer work for the conference we had back in April. And one of the speakers that we had uh, come in was Dan Brown from Eight Shapes. Mm -hmm. um, and he had just put out his book, Practical Design Discovery, um, which I am going back and rereading now for a variety of reasons. And one of the things that he talks about in that book is, you know, he basically has this sort of four square model of discovery activities. And that four square is divided in half with one half being um, convergent activities and the other half being divergent activities. And then it's divided in half the other way with um, some of them are problem solving and some of them are um, problem definition and some of them are solution oriented. And the thing that he says in the book, which I completely agree with, um, even in the second pass, is that, you know, there are a bunch of activities and artifacts you can generate in the discovery process, but you don't have to use them all. <laughs> it's like I, I, my spouse is, is a cook. 
um, my spouse is a uh-huh. fabulous cook, which means I do a lot of dishes. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Because <laughs> the way it works at our house is she does all the cooking and I do the dishes. And I consider that to be, you know, we both consider that to be a really fair division. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm a baker. Ah. And she can't bake at all. I mean, she's just, don't ask her to make chocolate chip cookies. It's, she might as well eat a hockey puck. Um, Interesting. And the difference between it is, is that cooking is very, you know, the way a lot of people cook, cooking is very kind of intuitive and very, oh, this doesn't smell right. It needs a little bit more spice or, oh, I need to stir this because the burner's a little hot or whatever. Baking is chemistry. Yeah, absolutely. So that's why I can't bake. <laughs> yeah, baking is completely chemistry. So if you've got a recipe where – I have this Christmas cookie recipe that I've been messing with for years, and it's it's a fabulous cookie. It started out as a, a cookie with butterscotch chips in it. And then one year I went, okay, well, what if I use half – butterscotch chips and half dark chocolate chips. Oh my. And then I had to experiment for a couple of years because the dark chocolate chips don't have as much fat in them. So the cookies were kind of dry and you know, this and that and the other thing. And it's gotten to the point where it's a butterscotch oatmeal, dark chocolate, coconut cookie. Wow. It's amazing. Killing me. But it's all about figuring out what the chemical balance is, right? So if you take out, you know, the butterscotch chips that have more fat in them and you put in dark chocolate chips that don't have as much, you got to add a little bit more butter. Design discovery is like that, okay? You can't just go, well, I'm going to use, you know, six user interviews and five website statistics and three whatever this is and and then we'll have our problem definition, you have to use the discovery activities that are right for the situation you're in. Yeah. You know, so you may not have access directly to your users for whatever reason. Your client says, no, no, we don't want you talking directly to users. But what you may have access to is um, a customer service staff that talks to the users. Great. Stand them in for your users because they know what the the company's, you know, they know what the company's customer base, they know what their pain points are because they're the ones who pick up the irate phone calls at three o'clock in the morning and go, okay, Apple, so why can't I get these podcasts off my iPad? Absolutely correct. I've followed every direction in your knowledge base and these podcasts will not come off my iPad. What the what? Yeah. And that's an untapped resource. It shocks me that, that more places don't lean on those people the way that yeah. they should. No, they really don't. And but but the whole the whole thing is is that, you know, there are all these different things that we do in UX and I think that the business of UX drives oh, we have to create this artifact. We must make wireframes or we must make a persona or we must do mm-hmm. a user journey map or whatever it is because we need to show the people who are paying our salaries value when in reality you may walk into a situation where, you know, your clients already hired a consultant who's done the research and done the this and all of that. And they've got, you know, 10 personas that they know are accurate for their audience. As the third consultant to come in, you don't need to make more, more new personas. You need to synthesize the information that's already been gathered. Right. Right. And look at it and say, okay, does this make sense? Is it all, is it accurate? Are there holes? Are there false assumptions here? Yeah. Leverage, leverage what's been done. I couldn't agree with you more. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and so that's the thing. I think we get so caught, caught up on proving value because we haven't really communicated to the people who hire us what it actually is that we do. We get so caught up on these artifacts that quote unquote prove our value yeah. that maybe sometimes we get into situations where we're not really doing the activities that would help us get to that tiny little solid nesting doll even faster. Yeah. And I think that's important. And it's a tough thing to do, particularly if uh, you're, you're trying to, to land a gig right with a client or you're trying to get a job because everybody wants artifacts, <laughs> right? That's what they want to see. Right? Yeah. We, we did this portfolio course. Well, it's all about artifacts. Yeah. You know, show me what you've done. And I get that because they do in their own way, show your thinking and how you approach the work. Uh, and that's valuable. But it also leaves people with the mistaken impression on both sides of the coin that the path to salvation lies in producing all these artifacts. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I actually, I took your, I took one of the first couple of iterations of your portfolio course. And that was, you know, that was one of the reasons that I took it is because as somebody who is focused on content, it kind of puts me in the portfolio, the whole issue of the portfolio kind of puts me in in particular between a rock and a hard place because mm-hmm. nobody wants to read when they look at a portfolio, yet a lot of content artifacts are word-based. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, I've done all of this great content inventory and content strategy work, but you don't want to see my migration tracking sheet. You want to see a pretty picture of the final project product. Mm-hmm. And the UI designer actually gets to claim that work because I didn't pick the font stack and I didn't pick the colors. And, you know, yeah, I helped write the content and give them an idea of what would be a good strategy to put on the homepage or on a landing page or whatever it is. But when people look at a screenshot of that, they're not going to see the content strategy. They're going to see the font stack and the pretty colors and the white space and all of the other things that go into UI design that I'm not an expert at. Right. And it's 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 a misinterpretation. That misinterpretation isn't doing anybody any favors. No, least of all me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and I want to tell you and that I, I looked at your portfolio briefly um, last night. I didn't dig into it, but I did want to make it a point to say to you that I think you've done an excellent, excellent job with it. Oh, thank you. Because your value comes out, to me, just even in the first screen, your value is coming through loud and clear. Specifically that everything you do, you know, works towards results, right? And it doesn't tie you down to any specific tactical hands-on role. And and just knowing you and, and being uh, associates for a while, um, I think that's where your value is. So I, I did want to make it a point to say that. I think you're, you're doing a good job there. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I um, like I said, I'm I took your you know I took your portfolio workshop and I took everything you said to heart. I was I was one of the people who actually volunteered to have you live critique my portfolio. <laughs> Brave. Um, I don't know if you remember that. I do. Um, but you, you know, I took everything you said to heart and and you know, really, it made me really step back and look at okay, it's not just about the work that I've done. It's not just about the artifacts I produced. It's about the work that I did. How did that help yes. my clients achieve their goals? Yes. It can be a painful way forward in some ways, because like I said, everybody expects the artifacts because that's yeah. what everybody else is doing. Okay. I will tell you though, that, that the path to doing the work that you are a meant to do, be extremely good at and see that is of most value to the people who are going to pay you to do it has everything to do 
with divorcing yourself from some of that stuff. Okay. I have not shown anybody a potential client. Um, uh, of course, I haven't had a potential employee for a very long time, but I have not shown a portfolio, quote unquote, for at least 15 years, probably more than that. Wow. And deciding to stop doing that was a very painful, difficult decision, but it was something that was gnawing at me um, in the back of my mind. And there were a couple of people who I really respected that told me, uh, that gave me that advice and said, look, if you keep tying yourself to these things, that is people's perception of who you are, what you do, and where your value is. That is true. And it's obvious that that's not the case. So you got to stop singing this song. And, and finally I did, and it was hard at first. But um, you know the, the results <laughs> hopefully uh, speak for themselves. It's, it's bigger than that. Everything I do, everything I take on is bigger than that. The companies who trust me, all right, because if they're going to pay me, I feel a great responsibility to that. Okay, they're, they're entrusting me with, with their, their hard-earned cash. And I don't want to ever promise that, oh, well, I, I know right now it's this or it's this or it's this or it's this. It's like, no, we got to find out. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we, we can't afford to solve the wrong problem here. So it's, it's tougher, but it's a good way forward. It, it is a very good way forward, and it, it kind of takes me a, a back a little bit to, um, to college. I, um, <clears throat> I went to a Catholic university, mm-hmm. and we had a religion requirement as undergraduates, and I actually managed to get out of the Catholic University of America without ever taking a class in Catholicism. No kidding. Um, yeah, I did. Yeah, I was, I was excited. Um, I took an architecture class that satisfied the religion requirement. Uh, I took the basic survey class. (laughs) Um, I took a philosophy class that satisfied the requirement, but the class, the class that I enjoyed the most was actually a survey of Eastern religions. So we looked at, um, different kinds of Buddhism, Taoism, um, a little bit of Hindu, um, and some other things that are lost, uh, lost in the, the mists of antiquity. But one of the, books that we read um, that I think is directly relevant to being a UX practitioner was something called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And basically, the whole concept of the book was that in order to actually be a practitioner of Zen Buddhism, you had to let go of the idea that you were an expert. You had to let go of the idea that you knew anything and you had to approach each situation as if you were an abject beginner and you knew nothing. And I think to a certain extent, that's a really good mindset for UX people to have because it will help us not walk into a client's office with a preconceived notion of, oh, you're in the healthcare sphere. These are the problems that you're going to have, or you're in the public sector. These are the problems that you're going to have, or you're a nonprofit. These are the problems that you're going to have. Yes, there is to a general extent commonality within all of those different domains of the problems that an organization or an agency or a company might have. But if you walk in going, okay, I need to open my mind and listen to what the people who are writing my check are telling me their challenges are, then you're ultimately going to get a better solution for them than if you walk in, put your feet up on the desk and go, yeah, I know what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I can't believe you mentioned that book, the Suzuki book, because behind me, and I don't know if it ever shows up in any of my, the the screenshots I take from this office. uh, When I bought that book, it came with a little print 
Really? Yeah, and, and, and the print is the same illustration that's in the book, I believe. It's, it's the whole deal where in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. And that's my, it's stuck to the wall behind me because that is sort of my guiding principle for everything. Don't ever assume that you know. It's a mistake and it, it prevents real progress, um, real meaningful results or outcomes of any kind. I absolutely agree. So that's amazing that you brought that up. <laughs> I'm sitting here. I, I was, I literally, I swear to you, I sort of had chills, you know, the hair of my arm was standing up um, when you were talking about it. Well, my work is done here then. Yeah, really. You've blown my mind on a Friday. So uh, we got a little bit of time left. We do. So I want to put you on the hot seat here and ask you okay. some, some hopefully interesting challenging questions. Okay. What tests your patience more than anything else? In general or in the work sphere? Either. Oh, um, in the work sphere, what tests my patience the most, this is going to sound horrible, is developers who are more focused on functionality than on the people who are actually going to use the product they're building. <laughs> How do you deal with that? Um, take a lot of walks. <laughs> take a lot of walks around the block um, and very gently remind them that, you know, for example, you've built this Drupal content type and all of the fields that are in the functional specifications are in the content type, but they're in an order that doesn't really make any sense to the people who are actually going to be working with the system. And maybe could we rearrange them like this? Mm -hmm. um, and just kind of remind them that while they may be having fun with code, that ultimately they're writing something that people who aren't as sophisticated as them are going to have to use. Mm -hmm. What's out of curiosity, what's, what's the ratio of responses in terms of people who sort of go, oh yeah, you know, I didn't really think about that versus people who are, well, no, this is my thing. Stop talking to me. I've never gotten a hundred percent. No, this is the way it is and just deal with a response. That's good. I've gotten everything from, oh, I just didn't think about it to fine. All right. We'll put the fields in whatever order you want them to be in. Um, and you can't see me rolling my eyes, but I am. Um, and I think, I think what the, I, I do have to say the good thing is that the developers that I've worked with, it's been about, I'd say 70, 30 of 70, 30 on the side of, I just didn't really think about that. And now I know better. Mm-hmm. And whether or not they carry that forward into other projects that they're working on with other people, I don't know. Um, but that actually makes me feel pretty good that maybe I'm able to kind of widen their viewpoint a little so that they consider not just whether or not the code is beautiful and it works efficiently, but how the person that they're ultimately going to, that they're building the thing for is ultimately going to use it. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's why you're there. I think that's why multidisciplinary teams um, are essential. Yep. Quite frankly, it's it's hard for all of us to get out of our own way, uh, and it's also why I'm I'm not a fan of the the all in one unicorn person who does everything. But we could no. be, we could be on that all day. But but um, that's that's very heartening, and I think that's 
reality in most cases. Yeah, I'd be happy to come back and talk with you about that. But if we do that, we're going to have to schedule our chat later in the day so I can justify drinking while we do it. <laughs> Fair enough. You're actually fairly close to me, so we could do that in, in person. <laughs> we, we could, we could, but I really, I can't justify the 9.30 a.m. beer at this yeah, point. Yeah, I understand. I don't, I don't want to foist that on you either. Um, I, I know that your master's was in film and video production. So you have, let's assume that you're on, this is a Desert Island question, right? Let's assume you're on a Desert Island with power and you can watch movies. <laughs> One movie, you get to be with you for the rest of eternity. What is it? Oh, wow. <laughs> I love this one. That's really hard. One movie that I get to be with me for the rest of eternity. That's right. It's all you get. It's cruel, isn't it? That is really cruel. <laughs> that is that is incredibly difficult. One movie that I get to be with me for the rest of eternity. It's Casablanca. Yeah. It's Casablanca. Why? It's nearly perfect. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. Yeah, there there are some, um, you know, from from a film nerd perspective, there's a lot to recommend. The um, director's cut of Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. There's also some things that recommend against it, and they really have to do with story continuity. Um. Otherwise, you know, if 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 I could if I could go back and make strategic cuts, um, I would I would possibly change my answer to Anne's cut of Blade Runner. Um, but not being able to do that, um, it's Casablanca. All right, well, excellent. They're both excellent choices. But uh, I think you've I think you've made an excellent choice. Thank you. Uh, one last one. Sure. What is the hardest or most difficult thing? you have ever done? Is this a personal question or a professional question? It, it can be either. The most difficult thing I ever did was leave my uncle in the hospital while he was dying of a brain tumor to get on a train to come home to go back to work. Mm-hmm. It's not a happy answer. <laughs> no, it's not. But I've been in a similar similar situation and uh, <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, it was it was the most difficult thing I've ever done. This is this is life, right? We're it's a series of difficult choices, some in greater extremity than others. It it yeah, it really is. I mean, like I said, being a human being's hard. Yeah, it certainly is. It is very hard sometimes. Sometimes harder than others. Where do you think our resiliency comes from? I'm still looking for mine sometimes. <laughs> um, I think I think our resiliency is based in the idea that it's based in two ideas, two key ideas that we'll get another chance to make better choices tomorrow, later, whatever, some point in the near future. Um, and it's based on a faith in ourselves that will make, that we will make better choices. So hope really does spring eternal then. Well, you know, I don't, I'm not a big fan of hope as a concept. And part of the reason I'm not a big fan of hope as a concept is because hope in that kind of, you know, political slogan-y kind of way, or that, you know, Alaska governor kind of way, um, (laughs) kind of, to me, removes the responsibility for making the choice from the individual. I mean, if I make a choice, I'm responsible for the consequences of that choice. 
And there, yes, there are factors that are going to affect me that are out of my control, but the way hope as a concept is sort of floated in our society, it's kind of like, well, I'm just going to hope and, you know, everything will turn out okay if I just have hope. It's kind of like my mother says, you know, Jesus doesn't care if you run out of gas. (laughs) Okay. Don't pray to Jesus that you're not going to run out of gas. Pull over and put gas in your car. (laughs) Ah, I love that. I love that more than you can possibly imagine. Um, uh, Which makes sense, right? Hope is wonderful, but without action – Exactly. I was reading. Um, I was reading an article. I, I have a ridiculously deep unread pocket list, and I was reading an article this morning um, off Medium, and it was called um, "Good Habits Versus Bad Habits." And the way the article uh, author started it was, he said, "You know, you, there are all these lists where it says, you know, they they make these false promises of, you know, if you eat." two eggs over easy with wheat toast while doing push-ups and, you know, reciting your mantra simultaneously, you too can be a millionaire in five years. (laughs) And, you know, his whole thing was that, you know, if you pick up the habits of other people who are successful, hoping that you're going to have the same success that they had, you're not living your life, you're living their life. And to me, hope is a concept that has that same thing. It's like, I don't want to live a life that somebody else dictates for me. I want to make my choices and live with the consequences of them, whether they are good or bad, whether I make a choice and outside forces push that choice in a different direction. So I have to make another choice. I want to live the life that I want to live. And if that means that I have to exercise five times a day, you know, five times a week, because if I don't, I won't sleep, then that's the life I need to live. Whereas somebody else can function perfectly well on four hours worth of sleep. I know I can't do that. Yep. So it's really all about making making good choices. And I would call that a mic drop. <laughs> all right. Well, I guess we're done then. And it has absolutely been a pleasure talking with you. I could do this all day, to be honest with you. Well, thank you, Joe. It was it was a pleasure talking with you too. And I'm I'm glad we found a time that worked for both of us. And yes, absolutely, we could definitely do this all day. All right. Let's do it again sometime then. Yes, hopefully. In the meantime, I wish you all the best in the world. You most certainly deserve it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And right back at you, sir. All right. Take care. You too. That wraps up this edition of Making UX Work. Thanks for listening, and I hope hearing these stories provides some useful perspective and encouragement, along with a reminder that you're not alone out there. Before I go, I want you to know that you can find show notes and links to the things mentioned during our conversation by visiting givegoodux.com slash podcast. You'll also find links to more UX resources on the web and social media, along with ways to contact me if you're interested in sharing your own story here. Until next time, this is Joe Natoli reminding you that it's people like you who make UX work.